0: Hey there! Welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs, and how their cultures make customers want to work with them, and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Ed Vincent, the founder and CEO of Festival Pass, which is the world's first live event subscription service across music, film, food, wine, theater, tech, and more. It allows customers to enjoy thousands of events locally and globally for one monthly fee. Ed has over 20 years experience in business, technology, and management, having founded and exited several companies in that time, including helping to launch film festivals in multiple locations and creating the concept for a Maxim-branded hotel in the Caribbean. On this episode, you will learn how Ed uses core values as a filter for decisions and how you can do the same. We'll learn why Ed spent the last 52 weeks ending Festival Pass's weekly all-hands meeting with the same one word, and we'll discover what we can learn from the world of parenting on building a consistent, predictable culture. This is a great interview packed with insights on culture building, and I hope you enjoy. Ed, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Ben. Great to be here.
0: I thought we could start with one of the previous endeavours that you've worked on, which is a company called MoviePass. And this influenced the model that you use for Festival Pass today. What was it like to work at MoviePass and use their credit-based system to inform the business model that you use now with Festival Pass? Did you consider any alternative options? What was the kind of decision-making process like behind that?
1: The reality is there there's been many influences along the way bringing us to Festival Pass today and MoviePass actually did not have a credit-based currency. That was one of the failures in their one of their choices. So in the world of subscription marketplaces, there's only been a few that have used a credit-based currency. An example of one would be ClassPass. But MoviePass and a few others struggled with the idea of how do we provide a subscription at a set price on a monthly basis and still manage gross margin by allowing different forms of uh, subscription. So in the world of MoviePass, they used a unlimited model. So people paid a a certain amount per month and they could go to unlimited movies. And the issue there is in models like that, um, it's likened a little bit to the old gym model where people are hoping for breakage. They're hoping that 20% of the people will go a little more, 80% 80% of the people will go less. And therefore, somewhere in the middle, there's maybe a margin left for the company. But I, I'm, I'm not a fan of that model, um, especially in the, in the world where the cost of goods sold is, uh, is uncontrollable because it's owned by another party. So in, in, in the world of a regular gym, um, it almost self-regulates. So if you have a gym and you have a certain space and you have a 1,000 members that come in, if too many come in at the same time, they have to wait longer for a machine and then they eventually come in at a different time and it self-regulates. Whereas uh, with something like Movie Pass, they had to pay for all of the movies from the movie theaters for the studios and the theaters to be able to supply that cost of goods sold or supply that inventory. Therefore, it's very hard to predict margin. And I never wanted to be in a business where I couldn't predict margin.
0: I appreciate you um, clarifying that, that the the credit-based system is actually the iteration off of it, rather than the inspiration. And it sounds like that was one of the the big lessons from your time at Movie Pass. Was there anything else that you had to learn going through this process? Because for people who don't know, Movie Pass is no longer in business. They they went out of business a couple of years ago, and I'm sure there were some things that you saw. Behind the scenes, that have impacted the way that you approach Festival Pass,
1: the inspiration and the the way we're building Festival Pass today does have some learnings from the the time that I was the chief data officer of Movie Pass. But it also has been impacted by my five years owning and running a consumer data company in all of entertainment for a lot of big television brands and film groups. Uh, it's, it really wasn't just Movie Pass, but There's a lot of learnings in the world of um, fast-growth marketplaces. So there's a few things MoviePass did right, and there's a few things they did wrong. The things they did right is they got a good product market fit, meaning that they developed something that people were interested in consuming. The idea that subscription is a way for people to increase the amount of time they spend in a movie theater— Absolutely got that right. And since then, almost every theater chain in America, including AMC and Alamo Drafthouse and Regal Cinemas and Cinemark, they all developed their own subscription plans based upon the learnings from MoviePass. So it definitely got the consumer market right. Part they got wrong was the underlying core business model and we kind of covered that with the credit based currency meaning that um, it's very difficult to have a subscription marketplace when you can't control the cost of goods sold so that's an issue um, the other thing that was a big learning is how to have measured growth MoviePass came out of the gate and within six months or less had over a million subscribers and uh, you know at its peak had three and a half million subscribers It's a lot of people in a subscription marketplace, and when you're a new company growing very fast, there's a lot of uh, growing pains that happen. So customer service was difficult. Um, Some of the financial management and the ability to keep up with product to meet the demand of so many users so quickly uh, and to scale that up was difficult. So a lot of those learnings is about having regulated, methodical, measured growth so that you can ensure the operations of the business meet the uh, growth metrics. So let's dig
0: into that a little bit because something that's come up in our conversation so far as a theme is this use of data as a means to make better decisions, understand your consumers better, and connect them to the experiences they want. So as someone with a data background, how do you think about using data with Festival Pass in a way that creates connection for your consumers with the events that they go to i'm wondering if there's a way that this is a self-regulating mechanism as well so you don't fall into that trap of creating a system that can't sustain the amount of users that are on it so how can the data both be tempered with realistic growth but also kind of serve its purpose of creating connection with your consumers
1: yeah. So one of the things that is beautiful about data is it allows us to understand the members that we have within our environment. So the more we know about our members, the better experience we can provide for them. That includes many things, right? It includes the presentation of certain events at a certain time. So I kind of call it the the Netflix recommendation engine. It's the easiest way to think about it. You know, When somebody goes to Netflix and they're able to be presented with a few dozen films or TV shows that are relevant to them versus the library of thousands upon thousands of pieces of content, it makes it easier to navigate and becomes more personalized. Um, we're doing the same thing with live events, whereas we have thousands upon thousands of events on our platform, but I want the ones that are relevant to each of our members. So the data helps inform that, both with understanding who they are, the demographics and psychographics of who they are, but also the behavioral aspects. Um, when they're within our environment, what are they doing? What kind of events are they going to? What things are they liking or viewing? Um, and a lot of that data helps uh, inform on how do we recommend certain uh, uh, things like a lot of times, even in music, discovery is huge. The I- simple idea that when somebody comes on and they might like a certain rock band, and there's another great band coming through the town that they live in, playing at a really cool venue that they may not have heard of, but because of their past history, they might like this. That that be, will be presented to them within the app. So that's one example. Uh, the content itself. The other is how we acquire that content. So when we go out and there's two sides to every marketplace, it's about building the inventory while at the same time building the consumer. And I think that plays into your question about regulated growth. We need as much inventory to be in line with the consumer growth so that when people come into the platform in their local area, they're going to find a lot of things to do and they're going to want to go to see these things. So that data itself helps inform the type of events we spend time on acquiring so that we make sure if we have a lot of people that love music, we have a ton of music events. If we're in New York City and they love Broadway, we have Broadway events. Pick a region in the United States that loves uh, football or loves basketball or loves hockey, we actually have the events that are appropriate for that region.
0: This seems to come back to this thesis of personalization, and how one person using a platform or using a marketplace can have a very different experience to someone else. And I think the example virtually everyone listening to this will be able to relate to is social media. No two people's Twitter feeds or Instagram feeds are the same, and that's very intentional because the algorithms are there to curate the content that it thinks will like you best. And similarly, it seems like this personalization makes the platform more accessible at the same time. So you're not just saying, here's all of the events that we offer everywhere. It's for where you are, like say you're in Austin, for example, here's the events that are in Austin, or here's the events that are in New York or are in London, whatever they might be. And almost by reducing the the choice, you actually give people more freedom to use the platform. I'm reminded of this science experiment that they did a couple of years ago, which is where they asked one group of consumers to choose a brand of jam, and they gave them 20 options. And the other consumers, they only gave them six options for the jam. And the group which had six options actually bought more jam, because they didn't have to spend all this time trawling through this ginormous menu. They had cut it off and said, this is your constraint. And much in the same way, it sounds like Festival Pass's data is doing a lot of the heavy lifting to make sure that consumers are served what they want at the right time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the only caveat is they still have access to all 20 jams. We're just recommending the six that they should be trying first based upon their taste palette.
0: Sure. That's a good nuance. Yeah. Well, let's dig into this a little bit because the Festival Pass is a relatively new Company. And I think it's fair to call you a serial entrepreneur. You have had several different projects that you've worked on and, and been a part of. What was your decision making process behind starting Festival Pass? Why did you decide this was going to be the project that I'm going all in on?
1: When I look at all of the background leading up to today, I learned that that I love live events through the 2000s. I learned how to build a uh, technology company twice, one an e-commerce company, one a SaaS company, and then a data company. So now if you think about what Festival Pass is, it's a e-commerce SaaS company. It's SaaS because it's recurring subscription. It's e-commerce because people are buying things. It's experiential and live events because of the product we're offering, and it's driven by data. So it is a combination of the five businesses I built before, now today, in an industry that's a $200 billion industry, and in an industry that hasn't truly been innovated on in decades. So when I put all of those fundamentals together, you know, I feel I'm the right person at the right time to build this company. And I'm super excited to do so because it feeds all of my knowledge and vices and all the things I love, all in one little tidy package.
0: Well, a question for you then, you, you said there that you're entering into an industry that hasn't been innovated on for decades. And I'm sure there are some people out there who would probably strike a disagreement with that. Could you make your case for why this is you're in an industry that is stagnant of innovation?
1: When I say it hasn't been innovated on, I mean it in the way that people acquire tickets to an event. So for consumers, and especially millennials and Gen Zs, there's certain things that they've proven to prefer to do. And that includes budgeting in a subscription type of environment. Gen Zs and millennials tend to budget a certain way in terms of how they live their life. They also live a very experiential life. So when you think about the way people want to consume entertainment, it has always been a one-off transactional ticketing experience and often once they acquire that ticket there's a little bit of lack of transparency in being able to get the ticket but then they're also charged a fee on the back end so it just hasn't been a friendly consumer experience so when you take what people prefer to do and consume and build a different way to deliver a product to them and put it in a social community that's frictionless and they can actually enjoy the experience during the process of acquiring the ticket, during the process of using the ticket, and then afterwards be a part of a community that has experienced that same live event with them and build friendships uh, and share together. That's truly something that hasn't happened before and we're really excited to be the one to bring it to the world.
0: What's really interesting to me about this thesis is the understanding that Communities don't just meet up once and then they're done. It's a consistent thing. When I water the seeds in some of the communities I've been a part of in New York, in Bali, in London, the real value comes from the fourth or fifth or sixth time showing up. It's very rarely that first time. And much in the same way, if you meet a group of people who are all into opera, for example, or all into wine tasting, and you have this fantastic event with them, The nice thing about the festival pass model is you're already setting up that next hit of in-person connection. So rather than just saying, like I remember going to my first festival at 17, I thought this is the best place on earth, right? Turns out a muddy English car park after some experience probably isn't the best place on earth. But at the time I was certainly convinced. And then I thought, wow, I have to wait for a whole nother year just to experience this amazingness again. But what if there was a way to say, well, actually, the friends that I've made, we can go and plunge into the next event. We can go and see the next musician in two, three months. The time that it takes for anticipation and for the payoff of bonding with a community seems to be radically shortened through this model.
1: I agree. And part of the social features that we'll be embedding within Festival Pass really come to meet those needs that you talk about. So very much a social kind of environment that members of our community can connect internally within the platform and begin to know um, who's at what event. Switching tack slightly
0: here, I'm curious if there are any communities that you've been a part of throughout your life, throughout your career that particularly stand out to you as that community where you think, man, I can't wait to go back and meet the members again, or I can't wait to go to that next event. And what was it you think that that community did especially well that created this very sticky community member experience?
1: As an entrepreneur, I've been part of something called the Entrepreneur Organization for almost 15 years now. It's a membership group of 14,000 global people or entrepreneurs. Sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, you feel alienated a little bit. But when you're with other EOers, as, as we're called, you feel like you're, it's your own kind. And there's chapters all over the world. So whenever there's an event here in Austin or there was in New York... You know, I'm going, and I know when I go there, I'm gonna meet 20, 30, 50 other entrepreneurs just like myself. That doesn't matter what business you're in; uh, just you have the same entrepreneurial bug. So that's been amazing, and you know, we've I've experienced a ton of amazing events, whether they were concert shows, speaking engagements, amazing dinners, boat rides, all this kind of stuff. I did within that small little community, um, and it was super powerful for me. And I love every time I have an opportunity to go meet up with them, I do.
0: There are plenty of entrepreneurial forums for people to come together out there, but it sounds like the tone of your voice there, where you said that if EO has an event in Austin, I'm going, there's something very powerful about the community they've built. So what do you think it is about entrepreneurs, organizations specifically, that has let them curate this great experience for other entrepreneurs?
1: It's a special group of people that live life where there's a three-party concept, where it's it's business is important, personal life and personal fulfillment is important, and family life is important. And those three things always need to be in balance for having a successful life, not just financial success. So I think a lot of people in the EO group share that. And we're always presented with opportunities to be lifelong learners. And the fact that everybody in the organization inherently is a lifelong learner with an open mind, it just makes those experiences great. And we've all gone through similar, training is the wrong word, but similar education, where uh, we're in forums. And when you're in a forum, you realize that when you're sharing experiences with people, it it is about sharing experiences and not giving advice. It's just all the different things that make it enjoyable to be around because you kind of weed out the unpleasant experiences um, by everybody kind of agreeing that this is the way we're going to operate.
0: Something you said there I want to pick up on, which is this idea of being a lifelong learner. And as we've dug into a little bit with Festival Pass, your experience in e-commerce, in SaaS, in data, and a whole bunch more has now culminated to the company you're building today. Now, if I were to come to work, we're recording this in June 2021. So if my onboarding is mid-June and I'm joining the Festival Pass team, you naturally have a high degree of context from your experience on the company and understanding things but that won't necessarily be the same for me if i've come from an adjacent industry i have no prior experience so how do you think about building a culture of learning within festival Past, so that someone who could have no prior exposure to the digital live events industry the business that you're building would be able to load up very quickly on the information they need and be able to innovate within the company in a short span of time.
1: There's a couple cultural things that we do in order to kind of bring the team on board towards the goals and visions that we have. And one is uh, every Monday we have an all-hands meeting. Everybody is invited to that all or actually encouraged to attend. <laughs> yeah. And it's very much structured in the same way that my EO forum handles our meetings. Um, so I learned a lot from there, and I've carried it through into uh, the everyday lives of our of our company. We like to. Give everybody an opportunity to see the full transparency of what's going on in the company and to let leaders of different organizational groups um, report on what's going on that week. What are they accomplished? What are they looking to accomplish? But the way we begin those meetings is we set people up for success by taking them through an exercise. So, you know, in the beginning of every meeting, we do a a settling exercise, whether that is a breathing exercise or a visualization exercise. Then we open up with uh, what is the mission of the company? What are the core values of the company? And we do a quote, a meeting quote. So usually the quote is relevant to something that's happening in the world, something that's happening that week in our business. And then, you know, a few minutes of getting everybody set up, then we get into the crux of the meeting and the content. But I think it's super important to bring people through that process and we always close every meeting out with a feeling, one word, close. So before the meeting's over, before they go off to the week and move forward is, is how, what do you feel today? Are you excited? Are you happy? Are you stressed? And it, it get, it's a temperature check on where everybody is.
0: What do you think would happen to the meetings of CEOs if they go through the settling exercise? If your team is able to be more present, what are some of the changes that you've noticed from doing this in your meetings now compared to when you didn't used to do this. What kind of effect does that have on the virtual meetings that we have?
1: You said the right word. It brings everybody to a present state. So when, when you're present, you're able to contribute. So it kind of takes people away from sending that last email before it starts and missing the first part of the meeting. Or, you know, everybody's on video. I also require everybody to be on video unless, of course, they're in a situation that won't allow it. Maybe they're driving or something like that. But it's important for everybody to kind of be together. So even though Zooms and virtual experiences will never be a true live one, uh, the closer we can emulate it, uh, the better.
0: It's also a means of you practicing what you preach in that being live is the best way to stimulate connection. And so if we aren't able to do that, if we're a remote team, then let's do everything that we can in order to simulate as vividly as possible the experience of being together and having that presence.
1: Yeah, and it you know, gives people an opportunity to smile and laugh. And we also enjoy having, uh, we have a podcast, not as good as yours, of course, but we have this amazing podcast called Festival <laughs> Past Stories um, where we, we end up interviewing a lot of great athletes and winemakers and actors and all, all the people that kind of fill the live events world. And our host, who's a really funny guy, he's always on every meeting, you know, and as he shares what's going on in the world of podcasting, it puts a smile on everybody's face because he's, uh, he's always making jokes and bringing the fun to the meeting as well. So while the meeting's serious, uh, it talks about mission, it also brings a little levity and fun.
0: Well, I think we've touched on here this idea of culture. As you said, this is a, it's a cultural attribute that allows you to bring the team together. So let's talk about your approach to building culture a little bit because as we've touched on you have done this a few times you've started and helped set up several companies so if you had to distill the repeatable parts or the repeatable process of building culture that you would go through let's say you have a complete blank canvas you're about to start a brand new company what is that first set of concrete steps that you're going to take every single time
1: I think defining or at least beginning the definition of a mission and core values. Too many companies end up choosing core values and, you know, having something where they can just put a sign on the wall and hang and point to. But the reason why we have that mission and core values is because it can be ever evolving. And the reason why we talk about it on every Monday meeting, by now, I'm sure everybody has it committed to memory. It's the, the simple concept that if you keep saying it If it ever isn't being fulfilled, it's a wake up call to say, well, is that, are we meeting the core values or do the core values need to change? So I think it's vital. I don't care at what stage the company is, before you actually move forth and start building, Mm. um, you should at least have a beginning set of core values, but be open to the feedback of the entire company in order to uh, continue to adjust or make the team be confident that core values are being met uh, or changed if needed. You said there that if they
0: are not being fulfilled, this is going to be a wake up call. So how would you assess this? And maybe if there's an example that springs to mind of a previous experience where they weren't fulfilled, what would that measure be or that, that check-in?
1: One of our core values is design thinking. It's a discipline on how you go about building a product you know a lot of people when they hear design thinking that haven't heard about it before assume it just means visual design but that's not the case it's building a product with the end consumer in mind at every step of the way so if for some reason we choose design thinking as a core value And as we're talking about our marketing efforts or our product efforts or our financing efforts, if it doesn't meet the needs or the discipline of design thinking, we are going outside of our core value. So it becomes a filter. Another one of our core values is the culture of gratitude. So if in our display of conversation and meeting, we're not choosing gratitude first uh, or being thankful for those that are participating, you know, we are going outside of our core value. So I think it's just a a reminder on every action needs to filter through those core values. You know, if you're making choices that don't properly filter through those core values, then either the core value is wrong, or you're making the wrong decision.
0: It's an interesting mental model having this as a filter, this idea that we're going to make the decision. And then there's this kind of mental layer to say, well, is this product being built with the consumer in mind? Are we practicing design thinking here or are we being grateful in this experience? So on behalf of our listeners, I'm sure there are some curious people now who are interested to maybe test out this idea of design thinking, because certainly this idea of building a product with the consumer in mind at every turn, if you're creating those decisions that are always going to impact the consumer, the the customer experience, you're going to win over the long term. I think Amazon's the shining example of this. So if, if someone is curious about design thinking and wants to dip their toe into the water of perhaps practicing it and how they make decisions on how they're building their product or their service at their company, what advice would you give to them?
1: There are resources to learn about it. IDEO. Uh, well, idea of the company, but um, there's a gentleman by the name of Dana. Forget his last name. Wrote a book on design thinking. He spent a lot of time as the head of marketing for Red Bull. That was a classic example of design thinking in how they built their marketing efforts around their brand vision, regardless of the product. Right. So at the end of the day, the product's the product, but. Everything they did was about adventure and everything they did was about, you know, the marketing stunts of sending somebody to space or sponsoring old uh, two-wing military planes flying around in a race. He came in and um, taught one of the classes I took at MIT with my entrepreneur group, and it was very impactful for me.
0: I think Red Bull's an interesting example to talk about here because they are a brand that have really on paper have no right to make the splash that they do a lot of the time. I mean, it's an energy drink, basically. That That's what you're buying. But they've got this whole brand around the live events that they sponsor, that they put on, as you say, having gentlemen jump out of space, literally, and live stream the whole thing. So from your perspective, as a connoisseur of live events and understanding the industry, what do you think Red Bull does right in the way that it brands itself and that it attaches itself to these adventurous experiences.
1: I think a lot of it comes down to some of the design thinking and and again, design thinking in terms of marketing, right? So who is that end consumer? What emotion do they want to feel? And how do I allow them to feel that emotion as they're surrounded by the brand and consuming the drink? when they're drinking it, are they feeling adventurous? It's, it's an attractive quality for their target market. They wanna feel adventurous. They wanna feel that they're different than the normal person. They're the ones that are gonna go out and do fun, exciting things. So whether it's aspirational or in reality, it's a good brand image.
0: Something you said that is really really interesting to me, which is this idea of not thinking about what customers are thinking, but what they are feeling. How do you apply this with Festival Pass, thinking about the emotion that someone wants to feel when they're at a live event and then creating a product or a platform that is going to deliver that emotion when they need it?
1: It's a lot of the reason why our name is Festival Pass, but we're a platform for all live events. The reason we chose that path and we'll see five years from now, just like Federal Express became FedEx, we may end up being called pass.live, which is a URL I own today. But the idea <laughs> yeah, being nice. is, is the uh, concept of evoking an emotion and festivals evoke an emotion. So by evoking that emotional response of what do I feel like when I'm at a festival? What do I feel like when I'm at a concert? What do I feel like in a stadium of 80,000 people watching you know, a football game? That feeling is why we use the word festival, because we're basically trying to share that whenever you're experiencing something, it's like the experience of a festival. The simple idea that we want to build that emotion that if I am a member of Festival Pass, it means I like to live life live. It means that I like to get out. It means that I want to be an experiential person and that's all that matters to us is really building that aspirational approach to say I'm committing because I'm a monthly subscriber to this brand, I am committing to live life live. And by doing so, just like when you commit to a gym membership and you want to, it means you're going to work out, maybe, maybe not. Um, but no, just I'm, I'm <laughs> being a little facetious. But the idea is by being a part and being a member, I'm telling the world that, yeah, I'm a member of Festival Pass. That means I like to get out and do things. I'm not going to be sitting in front of the TV all day. I actually like to be out and about.
0: So the festival is actually symbolic of the level of emotional intensity that you want your consumers to feel. And the idea of a festival is just a festival celebrating something. It's a celebration of your love of wine or your love of theatre, for example. But it's the commitment to, as you say, live life live that matters most. You can see the design thinking coming through there, which is What's the experience that our consumers want to be left with? Ultimately, they want to be fulfilled on their promise from the event. They want to experience something great. They want to be with people they care about as well. They want to be in an environment that makes them feel safe and relaxed. And the New York Rangers seeing them play at Madison Square Garden. I mean, like that is all of that and more all in like bundled up into one repeatable experience. So it, it comes back to this theme I think we're seeing of of the interview, which is, as CEO, you want to create products and platforms that are going to give your customers the emotional payoff that they're looking for repeatedly. So it's not just a one and done transaction where they have this great feeling of the product and service that you delivered for them, but actually they know when they're looking around the corner, they can say, oh, this is the next time I'm going to engage with the brand. And they're looking forward to it because there are other people to do it with as well, and it has that emotional experience that they're craving.
1: Agreed, and I want people to say, I've been to 20 events last year, 50 events last year, and I did it all through Festival Pass, and I shared my experiences with my community on Festival Pass. You know, I would challenge anybody that does go to live events to remember where they got their ticket for the last 20 events they went to. Which ticketer did they get it from? It's purely transactional, they don't even remember which was the brand of the ticket company they got it from. They just know they got to the event.
0: That's a great point. And you're you're attaching yourself to the emotional journey that the customer's on. Well, one of the core values that you mentioned earlier, Ed, for Festival Pass is this idea of gratitude. And that's very much a a feeling. That's something that's an emotion that can bubble up in the right contexts. How do you make sure that that gratitude shows up in the way that your team interacts and the way that you interact with your team as well?
1: Sure. So on the team side, I think it's really about how I treat um, the individuals in the company and ultimately how I keep repeating that how important that is, meaning that when we're in a all-hands meeting or when we're interacting even on an individual level, to consistently remind them, that I am grateful of their contributions. I'm grateful for what they're doing. Some of it may be hard. We may have to work really hard this week to get something done, but I'm grateful that you are participating and contributing. What's interesting is even on our all-hands meetings that I mentioned when we do a one-word close at the end, uh, you know, out of call it the last 52 one-word closes that I provided, my word has always been grateful. And it's really for them to consistently remember that, hey, I'm grateful you're here and contributing towards something we're building as a team. And the more I say it, hopefully, the more they'll feel it and the more they'll actually share that uh, sentiment with their colleagues.
0: A theme that we see in our interviews consistently speaking to founders and CEOs is that the culture that you want to set in your organization starts at the top. And whatever that shape or form that's going to take, as the CEO, you have to be the person practicing that on a weekly basis so people can see it. And I think there's something very powerful about, for example, the the new imaginary hire who starts in two weeks' time, and they hear, oh, Ed's grateful, that's nice that he sees that. And then eight weeks down the line, they've had two months of Ed being grateful, and they say, oh, wow, this is actually someone who is practicing what they preach. It does seem as well here that a big theme of your approach to culture is consistency in reinforcing the right messages. I wonder if you have anything else to say here because I'm picking up on the fact that you have to keep repeating the values as you've said, you've got to reinforce that with the gratitude every week and to keep sharing the mission and the vision and the purpose so that people have a North Star to move towards. Are there any other areas or topics that you think are particularly important to consistently communicate as a CEO to the team?
1: The word you use is appropriate is consistency, just like in parenting. Consistent, predictable builds culture. So, you know, just like with my daughters, if every time I say I'm going to do something. I follow through, and that consistency is predictable. Then it empowers them to believe in and trust who I am as a parent and, and what they go forth and do as children. Um, I think the same is in in a company. Is consistency is helpful because it allows people to predict. So the fact that we do a meeting every week and never miss it, even if some people can't make it for some reason, everybody always seems to slack if they have an issue and they can't make it, but whether there's two people that can make it or 40 people that can make it, I'm still going to have it. And of course, I'm going to uh, continue to empower others to take over and lead the meeting. It doesn't always have to be me, but the fact that we will never not have a meeting, same goes for uh, development. You know, I think the way classic tech development works is you know, having a daily standup, even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes with the product leaders and the dev team that consistency, that ability to know that's always going to happen creates accountability and the accountability creates progress. Nothing means more to me than consistency in terms of building a message, both from building a company culture, but also even from parenting. use that example.
0: It's much like with content marketing. It's not enough to just have the insight and to say, oh, we can share stories of people who attend festivals. Let's interview this player from the New York Rangers and then put our feet up. You have to be hungry to say, who's the next guest that we're going to bring on board and create that consistent experience with with your customers. And it's also interesting to me how that consistency, again, filters into the festival pass experience and how you're not just looking to deliver A great experience once, but a consistently great series of experiences as well.
1: Nobody's perfect. So if you have 100 experiences and one or two aren't perfect, but 97 or 98 are good, that's an A-plus on a report card. So it's the the concept, if you consistently do something and consistently deliver the promise you hope to deliver, it's okay if you fail once in a while, but you are given the option to consistently learn and and re-deliver.
0: I've got one last question for you, Ed, and it is going to put you on the spot a little bit. We didn't talk about sure. this, but the the question is, what does culture mean to you as a CEO?
1: Culture is is everything. At the end of the day, especially in the way I want to live my life going forward, or even in the past, but going forward, is, is the culture has been the definition of why somebody wants to do something why somebody wants to be around, why somebody wants to enjoy an experience. And and again, that's all aspects of life. You know, I've chosen a specific way to parent and I've chosen a specific way to interact with my children because that's what I want to enjoy and that's what I want to impart on them. I've chosen my group of entrepreneurs who fulfill me and where I spend my time because that is a cultural experience that I want to participate in. In terms of company culture, I think it's all the same things, right, is is if people are spending half of their life working in an environment and being part of it, I want them to be excited or happy or at least content to participate and be around the people. There's too many times that culture made things hard. It truly made it hard to build a business because without a good culture, nobody wants to work in it. I've seen that in some past companies that I've either had as clients or I've been a part of. And it is fascinating when half of the building of a business is jumping through landmines because of a broken company culture uh, and nothing gets done. And it's not about talent. It's not about money. It's just simply about desire to go towards the North Star where everybody believes in it. And it also helps weed the people out that don't. If people don't believe in the vision or the core values, they don't wanna live a culture of gratitude, then we're not the place for them.
0: What were some of the mistakes that those companies made that contributed to the particularly toxic culture so that it felt like you were going through a landmine field on a pogo stick?
1: I think the biggest thing that I saw in many companies is not knowing who the leader is or who to listen to. When there's fractioned leadership, meaning that somebody's supposed to listen to their direct boss. Is somebody supposed to listen to the CEO? Is somebody supposed to listen to the chairman of the company? Um, And when that message is inconsistent from the entire leadership down, there are issues. And I've seen it time and time again, where people don't know what North Star to go to when you have mixed messages from different leaders within the same organization. And it's, it's poisonous.
0: That's very interesting food for thought and I think a good point of reflection for everyone listening. Well, Ed, this has been a fantastic interview. And if people want to keep up with you, keep up with Festival Pass, where is the best place for them to keep up with your journey?
1: Sure. So um, festivalpass.com, if they want to see the actual product and and join and become a free member that eventually goes into a paid member. We're on Instagram and Facebook. You'll be able to find us personally. I'm on LinkedIn easy to find me. Um, And we didn't talk about it, but we have a pretty unique way we're financing the company. We have a lot of really uh, strong strategic investors that are all entrepreneurs. And as I mentioned, a professional athlete and numerous other people. But we also, because of this cultural concept, we're making it available from a crowdfund world that people can actually invest in the company today. So anybody that goes to invest.festivalpass.com, they can uh, learn all about it you know, we use a, a crowdfund engine to actually accept the investments. But it's important for me for members to be able to be owners and for owners to be able to be members. And I think as we evolve today in a world where a lot of individual investors are participating, with, you know, the advent of Robinhood and all these other uh, apps that allow direct investing, you know, it's important for me to, to make that available today, so that we can continue to build this circular culture of people that are part owners in the company as well as um, members
0: fantastic ed thank you very much thank you take care ben hey it's ben here just before you head off one quick thing this podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication and if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business We've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.